I talked to Jonathan recently, and he he has historically had a much higher tolerance for difficulty than than I have. And very often he will say, "Oh, so and so is a wonderful poet." I'll say, "Oh, really? What should I start with?" And he say, "Oh, no, you wouldn't like that." <laughs> <laughs> but but he said he has lately found himself growing impatient with what he he called it elusiveness with an e that it was not difficulty necessarily, but what I think what, what he identified as the apparent intention on the part of the of the writer to avoid detection or avoid clear communication. So yeah, I, maybe that's maybe what, that's the yeah. that's the thing to yeah that's the nit to pick maybe. Yeah, those are those are my boys I've been talking to recently. <laughs> they all have the same speaking voice too, which is a oh, weird thing. Yeah, weird. which is this the case of what Brian used to say about you having on another white male, another <laughs> white male guest? I'm trying so hard, so Cameron. You have no idea how many emails I send oh, out every week. Holy fuck, Cameron! Cameron, it's so true. It's so true. The last person in the world you should worry about is like a, a whining podcaster. But like, it is it is like remarkable how easy it is to get white males on and how it is not as easy to get people who are not white males on. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? I wish somebody would tell me. But yeah, if, if there's a, if there's an answer, let, please let me know. Like, yeah, yeah. If, whatever if, it is, like, if I will change the way I'm writing like, my emails. Massive misogynistic racist. Can somebody please tell us? Yeah, please, please let, let us know. I mean, we will I, do, I know we that will, that shouldn't be your yeah. job, but, but. Yeah, God, you know. added the rainbow letters to your logo. That was just something. <laughs> you hadn't noticed that. Hey, now. <laughs> if there is an if there is an answer to like how should we be writing our our solicitation emails so as not to put off everybody who is not a white man, <laughs> please, <laughs> yeah, please, please let us know the secret. We will definitely I mean, take your advice. No offense, Alice, but at least Matthew got like a very very vaguely mixed race disabled person on this program. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see anyone like that on yes. some poetry. Sir. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's it. Uh, I'm deleting yes. everything. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> I, just to, so we don't sound like utter fuckwits here. Like I do. I do just want to say that. Like the reason is like you just you don't just want to have the same conversation over and over again. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. learn and learn yeah. it. It's not a question of just of like mere representation. I think we just want to we just want to talk to people who are good. And and a lot of as you like, it wasn't like what was so devastating about Brian's uh, uh, critique was that it wasn't just white middle aged men. It was white middle aged men griping politely about an obscure piece in the LARB about formal poetry. Like it was a very narrow series of of like hoops that they were all jumping through. It's white man white males griping politely and then when you ask them to sort of expand a bit, a bit more specific they're like oh no i i, I can't they then they apologize and take it all back <laughs> oh it's do, hard work do, isn't it matthew it's very hard work that we do here this is this is this is i would compare it to childbirth to <laughs> coal mining i think yeah it's nothing nothing compares are you guys wearing flea rickets t-shirts no <laughs> what <laughs> I, I I I was yesterday. My my uh, uh, stepmother is wearing one. Did did we let you down, Cameron? You did. I I saw you. You sent me a photo of yours. Yeah, uh, it looked good. It looked good. That was like yeah. the first image. I think that's like the first image of me you've seen. Yeah. yeah. 
because I'm just a disembodied voice. I think I imagined you roughly the way you are. Like I was not, I wasn't so, like, I was surprised I by know. not being really at all surprised. I don't know how to feel about that, but. That's good. You look good. The shirt looked good. Everything looked good. Everybody is of age. Nobody is 17 anymore. Everything is fine. <laughs> Nothing untoward has happened. <laughs> Everybody's camera's off. <laughs> Everything is fine. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, back to the show. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you are listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening, and thank you especially to those of you who have taken a moment to recommend the show to a friend. I am grateful. Thanks also to everyone who's subscribing to The Secret Show. If you go to sleericketts.substack.com, you can sign up to support the show and to get a bunch of extra episodes. I'm going to be putting out one... I just put out one, and I will be putting out another one very soon. So this week, I have the second half of my conversation with Alice and Cameron about difficulty. I got a whole lot of responses to the first half, and enough so that I actually think it will take up a whole episode just to read through them and respond to them. So I, I think I'm going to be doing that on the Secret Show feed coming up soon really boy there were some people who were very upset with me for some very contradictory reasons i was either a gutless conformist accepting the academy's definition of poetry as as difficult and traditional and unapproachable by the common man or i was a simpleton advocating a, a mindless emotionality that gave no consideration to the devotion of lifelong poetry readers and scholars. In any event, I will be responding to all of those uh, soon, but for now, let's just get to my conversation with Alice and Cameron. It is, it is <laughs> the dramatic conclusion. Uh, I think you will enjoy it. And that is what amuses me about each of the articles that we I mean we haven't really got to all of them yet but we talk about your article Matthew we were also going to maybe talk about Jeff Page's article um, mm -hmm. uh, where he talks about different types of obscurity and Reginald Shepard's article defining difficulty in poetry each of you do this thing which I think is fascinating where you make a list yeah and I really think that is so telling because it's like you're, fa you're faced with this, this situation that seems disorganized and, and that worries you. And so, you know, you and Reginald and Jeff, you all kind of go, okay, all right, let's, um, let's organize it. Let's put it in categories. Let's make a numbered list and let's yeah. figure this out. And I suppose I just don't mind if I don't fully understand it. That's that's where I that's where I land. Well, the, and that's the, then that que the question is what are you going to it for? And that's why that I mean I talked the other day about you know what the stinkiness of a dog treat, but like I think there are certain things 
there are certain pleasures or pains where what matters to us is not the shape of the whole thing. It's the, it's the, the experience along the way. It's the texture of it for as long as it lasts. And in some cases that matters a lot more. And, in, and I think for me, I, I enjoy the texture of poetry, but that's not what I'm going to it for. I'm going to it to hear a voice. And, and in most cases to, to sort of, to arrive at some, not necessarily the story with the beginning and middle and an end, but some sort of lyric argument, some kind of arc. And, and if I just get the texture without a voice and without an arc or argument, then I feel, uh, I feel stood up. I feel unsatisfied. And I think there are people who, who are mostly going, maybe we're all going for more than one thing, but I think there are people who are sort of mostly going for, for the texture of it, if you're, however you want to call that, if that makes sense. Well, it's more than texture for me. It's, it's actually the pleasure of feeling unsettled. And now mm -hmm. I'm going to bring in the, the most alienating and difficult poet ever, Gertrude Stein. I, yeah. I started poetry started learning about poetry um, with Stein. I was introduced to her really, really early on. And I think that that freed me to just accept that meaning wasn't necessarily the only thing to be gained. Um, it is that, that kind of the jolt and breaking um, the the way that the brain wants to work, which is everything's linear, everything should make sense. If it doesn't make sense, that's bad. And then she comes in and says, it doesn't make sense and you don't need to worry. That's all right. That's, mm -hmm. that's fine. And, and I still, you know, I find a great comfort in that. That probably sounds very strange, but I, I truly find that to be, um, particularly when, when very strange and, um, and horrible things happen in life that are difficult to make sense of, Stein's the one who, who's most there for me. It's that, that's so funny because like, like poets like that make me feel like, like I'm a delicate lady and a man is coming to me and saying, you like it when I do this to you. You like it. You like <laughs> it. And I think like, God, all fucking mighty, just just go easy. Just call it just, God, Jesus, can you be done with this? I mean, I relate to that feeling, but not with, not with <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, it, like, I, like I get that there are, I mean, I guess I just feel like I can, I can get that feeling anywhere. Like I can, you know, like I can, <laughs> I can get the feeling of, of being like disregarded and having reality not make sense and having things not add up just by walking down the street, you know, like it's the special occasion is when something comes together. <laughs> I mean, I guess for me, I am more in Matthew's camp in that meaning for me is more, is very important, but I guess I'm not in Matthew's camp when it comes to how meaning is presented. So I will mm. come to a poem and love a poem, even if I do not understand it as long as I feel that there is something to understand, or at least there is something meaningful in the poem and in the language itself. So even if the poem becomes, um, even if the poem does have no meaning, as long as I feel that that break with meaning is in itself meaningful, 
that is what excites me in that type of poetics. And I, I feel like meaning is almost something we can't escape. I mean, people talk about the difference between poetry and music is because language is sort of corrupted by this continuous and often warring set of meanings. Each word normally has multiple meanings and some sort of compete against each other. And that's why po um, poetry can't reduce language to sort of pure sonic effect. And for me, it's sort of that mad etymological meaningfulness in language that I want to find in poetry. And that's why poets like Hart Crane and Jeffrey Hill do fascinate me and do excite me, while poets like uh, Ashbury do not quite excite me as much because that because there's it's still meaningful but meaning is treated and maybe lackadaisical is too insulting but meaning is treated meaning is treated in a more sort of relaxed way where meaning isn't either being simply given to us or violently broken with to communicate something to communicate something else in sort of meaningfulness and that sort of lackadaisical approach from Asbury and language poets, I just find, I mean, at times boring and at other times just uninteresting. Yeah, no, I mean, I I agree with you. I find it I find it boring and uninteresting a lot of the time too. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that makes this conversation difficult is that there are just so many different examples, even within the work of Ashbury alone, there's stuff that's pretty straightforward and then there's stuff that's like really, really confusing. And he wouldn't care whether you only liked one of his poems or whether you loved every single word that he ever wrote. Yeah, it's just back to that thing that Hill says, art, art has a right and an obligation to be difficult if it wishes. And you have a right, a, a right to just go this is not what i come to poetry for i'm going to go over here and and you know read some uh some larkin but which is which is distinctly not answering philip's i mean to be fair philip doesn't actually ask a question but he he what he brings up is not that people in their articles are saying the triumph of love is difficult poems aren't allowed to be difficult they're saying it's worth the difficulty or it's not worth the difficulty and that like that's the interesting question to me the, the question I, I have for you, Cameron, is with some of the poets you like, I wonder what your, because we like we all have some, some like uh, metal detector or divining rod or however you want to call it that says like, oh, this is, I'm going to come back and reread this. But like mm -hmm. for you, what is it that tells you that there's gold to be found here and not just somebody with a silver tongue dicking around? Right, because really like Ashbury is talented, like has a really good. He ha he's oh, has he's has this talent, and when he just fu when he just messes around, it's like dazzling in a way that it's not with most people. But how do you? What indicates to you that like, oh, I really want to dig in and, and like, I want to encounter the difficulty here. I think it's often almost on the micro level, language choices and sort of a certain specific choice of word or maybe a certain style that carry, sort of carries within a sort of mad, uh, that sort of mad field of meaning that I was talking to you about earlier that excites me. Like I'm, I'm in conversation with Shane a lot and I'm going, because me and Shane have a lot of similar opinions on yeah. poetry, but I might, I might talk to you about 
you later, I don't know. But I'm sort of going through poets. Shane likes to see if I like them. And mm. um, his master, Lucy Brock Broido, I really like. I've been reading a lot of her recently and I really like her. I mean, there's other, but there's other poets like, um, did you say he likes Lynn Higinian? I don't, Lynn, I don't know. That's he name, he that's told me name. that Lynn Higinian's My Life is like maybe one of the great poems of the 20th century, I think was how he put it, okay. something like that. Uh, so, because I, re- I read her and found her mostly boring. And just, I didn't find that sort of sense of meaning tr- um, embedded with sort of complex and mad language that I find in other poets that Shane likes and I love too. So it's sort of, I guess it's that, it's that sort of, for me, a poem must in some way attempt to communicate and must in some way have a very focused relationship to language. And I find the the, the quote-unquote language poets and some of Ashbury right. doesn't do that for me. So when I'm reading poets I like, and this, this happens more with contemporary poetry because I'm more sort of the poets, the sort of quote-unquote canonical poets, most of them do it for me in different ways. Like Keats does it for me and so does Hopkins yeah. does, and Hopkins does it and Dunn does it and Herbert does it and I know Pinder does it. So, and they're all very different but I have to sort of sort through more contemporary poetry to find the poetry that really does it. And I guess it's that sort of interaction with meaning and language. I guess, so I'm sure I mentioned this, I, try, I go on about this too much, but for me, my poetry, the poetry I love is it treats language as a means to communicate and as an end in itself. And I like that yeah. type of poetry, but I don't like poetry that only uses language as a means, and I don't like poetry that only uses language right. as an end in itself. I think I, I want those two things to coexist because I want a structure of meaning to support, to not support a structure of meaning that interweaves and makes necessary a structure of inventiveness. And when those, when either of those structures isn't present, is when I sort of turn off to the poem. So you're are you you're familiar with the um, the old I forget oh, I forget was it a symbolist exercise the exquisite corpse who came up with that oh surrealist surrealist that's what it was yeah yeah, yeah. surreal of course yeah it was surrealist so Alice do you know this exercise no it's both visual and uh, literary um, but the idea is that you you either write a line or you sort of draw a flat I mean we'll just do it with literature because you you can do it with drawings but you write a line. And then sometimes you leave the last word of it or the last phrase of it or something. You write a little section and then just the very tail end of it is visible. You fold over the paper or whatever. And then you either mail it to or pass it along to another writer who reads just the tail end of what you wrote and writes the next section and leaves just the tail end of that visible and passes it on either back to you or to someone else. And then basically the whole thing gets composed with every writer only knowing the very phrase or whatever word or whatever that immediately preceded the section he wrote. And then you read the whole thing together. Now there are, when it comes to, when you have a formula for like, this is going to be the head and this is going to be the body and this is going to be the hands and the feet and the genitals and the whatever, like when you do that with a little doodle, the results can be kind of silly and fun and goofy and grotesque and charming for my money with 
poetry, it's a formula for garbage. Uh, it's like, I, I find it never interesting, always really sort of like a dumb exercise that almost like a superstitious exercise, like almost like automatic writing. Like, are we asking the Ouija board to write this fucking poem? Um, with that in mind, I, uh, my opinion of Linhaginian is I'm sort of cheating because, you know, I generally speaking, I, I kind of say like, I don't really care about the intention of the writer. I care about the effect of the poem. And I have read some of her poems and I find them for the most part just baffling. But she also came and read um, Georgia when I was there and she read from my life because there was another volume of it that had just come out. And, you know, who knows if this is true, but what she said with seeming total sincerity was that the way she composed that entire poem, which is a very long multi-volume epic poem, the way she composed it was that she would write a line and then walk away and maybe even like write one line on one page, another line, on another page, another line, on another page. And basically she wouldn't write the second line on any given page until she had completely forgotten what was going on with the first line. That basically she wrote it as an exquisite corpse of one so that she was, to I mean, in course, because she's writing it, she's never going to totally lose track of the line and she can still read it and her unconscious, blah, blah, blah. But, but at, to the best of her ability, she was writing it with, with a total severance between every line. And, and that to me almost forecloses the possibility of there being anything interesting, unless I'm her therapist or her husband, you know, <laughs> but that's, I mean, like that, that's my sort of uncharitable, yeah. you know, instinct toward that kind of writing. Wow. I have I'm a complete opposite instinct. I'm, really? I'm sorry. I have the complete opposite instinct. I hear that and I'm like, wow, I really want to read that book. What's in there? Oh, well, there's there's a lot of it to read. <laughs> you got, <laughs> got many volumes to choose from. Yeah, yeah. the length. Length will, yeah, it's always, that's always a challenge for me. I mean, but, but that's like, presumably, I really want to read that is coming from, like, that's got to be because you assume there's a really fascinating mind at work there. Like I read the the like shattered fragments that were collected as the original of Lara and published after, you know, decades after Nabokov's death. It was like his basically his like note cards in preparation for a, a novel that he never got to write. And I read it because he's fucking Nabokov. And like, even though it probably shouldn't really have been collected and published as a novel, and even though it's sort of a mess, there's so much interesting stuff there that I that I like correctly assumed I would find again because it's fucking Nabokov. So I, like to me, like if, if it's, if it's a source that I know is going to be a really rich source, then like maybe your weird experiment is going to be worth finding or like following up on. But I'm curious, Alice, like what is it about just that? Unless like you already have a relationship with Hygienian's writing, like what is it about that exercise that, that appeals to you as a reader? Yeah, I think it is imagining that a mind like hers would come out with some really interesting uh, lines. I mean, it reminds me too of when I read Midwinter Day by Bernadette Mayer. Mm. And the line is she wrote the book in a day. I think there's a bit more to it than that. But the line is that she, she wrote the book in a single day, Midwinter Day, 1978. And I, I read the whole book. And it's not all interesting and it's not all pleasurable but there are moments of there are really really bright shining moments of 
of pleasure in that book for me. And I think that there would be, there would probably be in Hergenian, there probably would be if I read the whole of the skaters. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah, and it comes back to this thing of worth, right? Like worth going through. Yeah. And I think because my first poetry teacher very quickly introduced us to Stein and then we we read her in this huge, huge group um, and we exploded the, the meanings of all the little parts of tender buttons. I take it, I, I take it as a given that there's always worth, um, until, until I come up against something and I go, well, no, actually. Um, so they're, they're worthy until proven unworthy. Are you a fast reader? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. And I also don't think I'm a particularly, like, I think I tend to sort of skim over the surface until I'm, until something really grabs me and, and pulls me down. Okay. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not a great reader at all. I'm, I'm not, either. I'm a very, very slow reader, which is I think partly why I can be stingy about dealing with fuck fools when it comes like, like, I don't really want to read your big experiment. If you're calling it an experiment, then it probably is not going to turn out well. <laughs> I, so I, I have a question for both of y'all because you're both readers and writers. What is the gap or differential or or spread or however you want to put it between what you will tolerate or even embrace as a reader and what you will permit yourself as a writer when it comes to difficulty? Does that make sense as a question? Like, does I? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Is there a gap or is it just a line? Um, yeah, well, it's changed for me a lot because I, I mean, reading through these articles again, Jeff's article in particular, I felt so implicated, you know. Um, he talks about these different kinds of obscurity and one of the, he, he talks about desirable obscurity, inevitable obscurity, obscurity of cultural reference syntactical obscurity, obscurity for tonal effect, they're all kind of fine. But then he gets into accidental obscurity and reckless obscurity and then willful obscurity. <laughs> and, uh, and I think I very much, you know, when I started writing, possibly because I was introduced to Stein really early and because a lot of the writers around me in Melbourne were writing um, poetry that didn't have like immediately clear meaning in it I ended up trying to ape their work and I ended up in accidental obscurity land in, and sometimes in reckless obscurity land um, that was you know I, I was essentially trying to fool myself um, and now when it as a writer yeah I I'm a lot less inclined that way a lot lot less um i don't want to just like serve everything up on a plate i guess uh, i want there to be some kind of like uh for the reader to to get some kind of pleasure out of spending a moment with the poem but and and for it to be worth doing that coming back to worth but yeah i'm not trying to get away with reckless obscurity and I'm not ending up in accidental obscurity anymore. Is it, is it when you say like you want to, 
you want them to spend time with it. Is this like pistachio nut like shells? Like you, like you don't val like you want them, you don't want it to be so difficult that they're never gonna, like it's sealed shut. You want it to be cracked open a little bit so they can get their fingernail in. Like, is it a matter of wanting there to be some effort to decipher or is it, is that a different thing than, is that even on the same spectrum as the, the difficulty question? the time you want them to spend with it yeah i mean i want it to be worth getting to the nut right i want that that nut to be good so that yeah, if yeah, you yeah, do yeah, if yeah. you do spend time with it yeah. what you get out of it will be will be worth the time that you spent um but yeah i'm i guess i just want to put myself on the hook and just like admit that I really bought all this hook, line, and sinker really early on and ended up writing some just truly uh, some poems that mean mean nothing to me, let alone anyone else. Uh, and some of them got published and um, I don't feel great about that. And now I'm, I'm, I'm mending my ways. I mean, mending, but, but you don't, so, but you are, you're mending your ways with your writing, but you you retain a tolerance and even an enthusiasm for, for relatively high levels of difficulty in, in, as a reader. I, yeah, I think so. And I think that is comes back to what you said about imagining the mind that ran those experiments, say Lynn Higginian's experiment, um, yeah. being, being a worthwhile mind to pay attention to. Do you, yeah. do you, st do you have tolerance for the writers who you imitated at the beginning? that made you obscure do you have tolerance for their obscurity now that you don't imitate them i guess once you try it and you realize that it's actually pretty easy you, it loses a lot of its glamour uh depends do, do how you look do you look down on their writing or not look down but do you find them less do you find their writing just less interesting or just not yeah i guess what, what i'm trying yeah what i'm trying to say is you you have you moved away from those writers and do you do you believe now that those writers have less worth than you used to think um in some cases yes <laughs> i guess it's just like when you start out you you assume that if a if a poem's in a book and and a, a publisher made the book and printed copies and it must be worth there uh, and it, it does take a little while, or it did for me, to to build up the confidence to say, well, great that you got this book published, but like it's actually not very interesting. And what you've done here is is actually pretty easy to achieve. I know because I I, I tried and I kind of made something that sounds the same, <laughs> and it also got published. So yeah, I suppose um, yeah, some of them. Some of them I've moved on from. I, I think I think I am getting less patient and more what I would call conservative uh, in my old age. But I still feel excited by things like that, by by experiments, and by the the possibilities of what they they might yield. And they're experiments because like so often they fail. Like I say, like most of Midwinter Day is is boring and that's the point actually of that book but yeah i still i still feel excited by the possibilities there um 
and no, I, don't, I wouldn't say I look down on, on those poets. There's not many poets I look down on. I mean, I guess I meant not them as persons, but their sort mm. of style. I think, yeah, maybe I, I'd probably put that better when I said you see less, less worth in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like worth to me, it's kind of like, well, it, again, it's, I just feel as if it's a solved problem because if you don't think there's worth, then change the channel. But but I I know and I can hear I can hear listeners like getting getting behind their keyboards and I say yes but these are the people who get the tenured professor roles and they get the money and they get the prizes and and like, I understand that I understand that that's frustrating. Talking of tenured roles, can I distract the conversation very slightly and ask Please, what yeah. both of your your guys' opinions are of Jury Graham? Haven't read her. I've not. Yeah, I've read really? almost none of her, unfortunately. Because um, she seems to be the one that a lot of people rant about for getting tenured positions yeah. and also being quite difficult. But I really like, I, well, I don't really like her. She's one of my all-time big influences, bestie poets. But, like, I like her, and I like parts of her quite a bit. And, you know, she seems to be someone whose difficulty is to be is deserved or maybe worth it. And I know a lot of the plaudits people give her are deserved, although maybe not for every single one of her books, which it seemed to be a little bit in the late 2000s, or at least I guess so from reading sort of Dave Coates's review of one of them. But no, I was just interested. Sorry, Matthew, we can get back to the topic now. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I just, I've read of... I, I have occasionally read a poem here and there of hers, but I have not spent any significant time with her work. I mean, partly because the handful of poems I've read didn't, you know, some I thought had some nice things and some not so much, but none of them made me think, oh, I really want, I really want more of this. Like, I really want to go find more, you know? There are poets yeah. who do that, and, and and hers so far, her poems so far have, have not. As far as like tenure and positions and award, I mean, I just think like there's so, I just think like all of those are almost perpendicular to artistic worth that I just can't, you know, it's hard to have sentence length thoughts about who gets them or who doesn't. <laughs> you seem to have a pretty high tolerance for difficulty, Cameron, and also you seem to give yourself a pretty free reign with it as well. I mean, not, maybe, maybe your tolerance exceeds your free reign. Like, I think probably all three of us are more tolerant of it in others than in ourselves. Yeah, I think that's Yeah, good. Yeah, I, I'm pretty aligned with Alice and not allowing myself, or at least not wanting, accidental difficulty and, you know, um, easy difficulty. And I think, you know, that's the sort of the great beauty of sort of um, the online workshops for me was that they sort of allowed me to see how other readers understood me without that difficult, uh, understood me and you know saw that difficulty in me and how I could sort of get into a reader's a reader's mind at sort of quite an early age. So that's what helped me there. I mean, yeah. I I guess what I'd say is that I'm into difficulty and obscurity in my own work when I think it's necessary, and that. How do you judge that? That well, it seems to me to come down the subject, and it seems to me how well I can communicate something in language 
in a way that doesn't betray the thing I'm communicating. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I have to communicate something difficult, it's because I want to hold on to a truth that is difficult or complex. Like this is very, this is very Hillian, and like you know, I a lot of my aesthetics have come from Hill. At that sort of extent, hopefully not my style, but you know, a lot of my aesthetics have. So, yeah, I, I, I. I'm trying to because I was trying to think of sort of difficulty I wouldn't allow in my work, and all I kept thinking was sort of people's styles and how I wouldn't allow that because I just turned into like an imitator. But that isn't really what the types of difficulty are. So it really does come down for me to sort of a necessary difficulty. I certainly wouldn't want to include this difficulty because it was. Fashionable difficulty, or played into some poetic right. tradition. Like I'd only want to include difficulty because the difficulty assisted in some way the poems play among language and meaning. So that still be the bars I set myself. But yeah, it's. I mean, Hill talks. I think before the paywall, Hill, Hill mentions uh, Milton's. Uh, manifesto for poems to be simple, sensuous, and passionate. And I take that to my own work, and I want it to be simple, sensuous, and passionate. I don't want it to be simplistic, and I think simple and simplistic are very different things. Mm. Yeah. But I think... I don't think it's necessarily paradoxical for something to be simple and also have difficult elements, or for it to, to be a difficult poem. Yeah, definitely. Do you, do, could you ever, in revising a poem, and I wonder this with both of y'all, could you ever, you know, look over a poem and say, this spot is difficult? Like, I can imagine saying, this spot is difficult, I need to work on it. I can imagine saying, this spot is difficult, fuck it, I can't make it any better, it's good enough. Hmm. But the question is, could you ever get to a spot, like look at a spot in your poem and say, oh, this spot is difficult, good. Like, I'm glad yeah. I want this to be a little bit difficult. Is that something that, yeah. like, rather than like, I think I should keep working on it so that it becomes easier. Yes, because it gets back to my, what I was saying about how it's the difficulty in some way did not betray, but instead, I don't want to say enhance, because it's not enhanced, but the difficulty suited the subject. So if I, can't, if so, I looked at a part of the poem, I thought that is difficult, and I thought, that's because the subject matter at that point demands difficulty and complexity. I'd leave it as such. Do you do you oppose difficulty in that? Like, are there cases where you would oppose difficulty to something other than clarity? Because I think my impulse would be, like, I want my poems to be like Moravian ginger cookies. Like, I just want them to melt on your tongue. Like, I want, I want them to be as effortless to read as possible. And I don't succeed at that, but that's my ambition so if you are looking at looking at a poem of yours and say this part is difficult and you say to yourself you know do you say to yourself this part could be clearer but i don't want it to to be or do you say to yourself this part could be something else but i don't want it to be because it's good that it's difficult like is it clear is clarity opposed to difficulty in those cases or is something else opposed to difficulty there i don't think clarity is in itself opposed to difficulty i mean 
if going back to what I'm saying about if I find something in a poem that I think is difficult and that suits the subject matter, in that way, it might not be clear because it might not be a sort of, it might not possess clarity because what I'm writing about doesn't possess clarity or or the thing I'm writing about is not, is so far back that we cannot access it with clarity and I want to represent that in the poem. Hmm. But I can also okay. imagine, I'd have, I'd almost, not on a case-by-case -case basis and not exactly a categorical basis because Alice pretty well describes sort of our reaching after categories at times vainly when we enter something we don't understand. But I think I had would have to take on a more specific basis to consider it. Because I can ima imagine different forms of difficulties where I might leave it in, again, if it suited the subject, that might not just to be to do with clarity. For instance, like, I could, I might, if you like, if I allude to a, a cultural reference point, like say out of Greek mythology, for instance, if I put in a cultural, a Greek myth, a Greek character, a Greek hero, for instance, or a god, or a term, and leave it untranslated, that's, I guess that's clarity, but that's also right, cultural reference point obscurity is, so I might not leave that translated because I would feel that somehow leaving it untranslated is more suited to the poem's intention at that point than expanding that or somehow breaking some form of atmosphere or some form of rhythm or some form of style with a more sort of prosaic translation right. or explanation of the reference. You don't want to sacrifice elegance. Yeah. And you don't want to sacrifice yeah. like mood or style or, or voice. Yeah. Just for the sake yeah. of glossing something. A good many things, right? A right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. No, I'm, I'm with you there. Alice, what you do you, are, are there are there cases where difficulty is not just necessary but good? Not for me. Yeah. Not for me. No. Um, in my case, difficulty has always been a, a form of hiding, and it's funny because I've been I've interviewed a few people on um, my podcast over the last couple of weeks who have been uh, who have pretty much said straight up like. I don't want you to see me in my poem. I want yeah. it's difficulty as distancing. And I'm very suspicious of this move. Uh, partly selfishly, because I, I really just want, I want to see you. I want, I want to see you yeah. in your poem, but um, also because it's like, why, why do you want to hide? And, and the, the answer that I've got when I've, ask some version of that question is I just don't find myself very interesting and um, mm. and I think that's why I was doing it in the first place too my life uh, wasn't very you know my life still isn't very interesting but but um, yeah I didn't I didn't really have much to say and so mm. I used a lot of kind of gymnastics to try to distract from that fact and the, the, the reality was for me just hadn't read enough or lived enough to be able to write a good poem yeah now with these people i'm talking about i think that they've they probably have read and lived enough but they have some other reason that i think might not even quite be clear to themselves why they want to obscure um yeah. themselves so is, this, is this obscurity to obscure the autobiographical element i so think when you talk so about 
Yeah. Okay. So it's not. It's it's adding to Jeff's list. Uh, it's not accidental obscurity. It's not reckless obscurity. It's not. Well, it is willful obscurity, but not in the way that he means it. It's it's embarrassed obscurity. It's obscurity as safety like measure, obscurity. defensive obscurity, and yeah. and I <laughs> I just think that's funny because it's like, guys, you're writing a poem. What is left to defend? Like, yeah. you know, there's no I'm, more pretending that you're cool. Right. It's over. And you're already naked. Yeah. You're already naked. The lights are on. Yeah. Let's just do this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested. And, this, and in just for the read, listeners, this is Je Jeff Page wrote an essay called Obscurity and Poetry, a Spectrum uh, in Southerly magazine that yeah. caused a big shitstorm, mostly because he included one example of somebody he thought was willfully obscure well, like one it's not yeah, one example that really more pissed to me it off. That. there's more it. to it than that yeah. Yeah. okay yeah, yeah well yeah, yeah. do you want to do you want to give a little more of the back because you you brought this up on your podcast more obliquely before. i did i did i still don't the thing is i just don't have a good sense of like whether this um was just a moment of everybody being annoyed or whether it was a kind of a rupture and after that point, mm. everybody was just pissed off with Jeff Page forever. Um, but yeah, so he, he outlines these eight different types of obscurity. And the last one is willful obscurity, where he talks about poets using language intentionally to essentially shut a reader out. Um, he To illustrate that example, he used work from a book called Open Sesame by um, a writer called Michael Farrell, I think Michael Farrell is uh, like a genuinely like an Ashbury level genius uh, mm. and something of a national treasure. Um, <laughs> the little bit that he pulled out is like, yeah, you know, it's probably not like the best lines of any poem that Michael's ever written. But um, I think the fact that Australian poetry is so small, this was a rare example of you know, poet A naming and calling out poet B, and but in the process implicating really a whole generation, school, group of poets yeah. uh, of, of whom I suppose I was a very baby one. You know, I was trying to ape the people mm. who were who were looking to Michael um, yeah. and everyone was just Because like, your mentor was one of the most vocal critics. Of yes, this piece. yes, yeah. yes. And yeah, and so... Um, Everyone kind of, yeah, as I say, I don't know whether it was just a moment, whether it was just a week or whether it was a years long kind of saga. <laughs> I doubt it was yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, but it, yeah. it upset people enough that Southerly pulled the paragraph. I mean, with, it sounds like with <laughs> Jeff Page's agreement, like they pulled that paragraph from the piece. Which is, so yeah, you, which you is interesting. You could find it elsewhere, but like, yeah, that seems it, crazy to me. It seems crazy. And, but you can also see a way in which it is, um, and again, it doesn't work because the internet is the internet, but uh, right. you can see a discussion, and I've been part of these discussions, you know, for other issues, but you can see a discussion where they said, ah, now that, now you know, where Jeff said, now that I think about it, I probably mm. didn't need to go there. Let's take that bit out and and sort of in doing so admit that, Maybe that was a little mean. We don't need to get mean. Let's take it out. But you know, but, but Michael Farrell is very 
he's you i mean you're saying he's an ashbury level genius he he's also i mean he i'm assuming he was quite prominent and successful right like he was a oh, well-known yeah. so he was picking a big target like he was he wasn't punching down he was like yeah this, oh, in a way like, like that's the target that's the kind of target you want him to take up right mm. for yeah reasons. yeah i i suppose so but i suppose in you know in australia there aren't really like as far as targets go every target's pretty small and personal so 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 a thing that that david clark said to me to he and emilio phillips were very very helpful in editing the long piece i did on, on obscurity and poetry or you know not making sense but the thing they said to me because i the original version of that essay did not include examples it, it talked plenty about kinds of you know nonsense and poetry but didn't provide named specific examples and the way they said it to me was basically if if you want people who are already totally in the know to read this they will know who you're talking about hmm. but if you want people who say don't already swim in the right you know with, with the right crowds and 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 come upon poetry and say what the fuck is this if you want them to read this and feel edified by it feel like oh god this is so helpful now i get what's going on then you need to provide examples so to me like this is a piece where you're totally right like this you know it's very evident by the the comments which go on way longer than the piece itself <laughs> and are very heated um it's very clear that like there was a there was a crowd that was ready to listen like to hear this and and know all like know immediately everybody he was talking about and, and in a way naming michael farrell was redundant except if you were a student or an amateur or somebody who was not in the crowd, then it seems like that's the person for whom it's really helpful to have an example to say like, okay, yeah, I've read poems like this and been confused by them. And maybe this is, this helps me understand what's going on. He, to me, like his, his taxonomy of obscurity is, is a little bit, uh, it, it doesn't do much more than just identify. I mean, part of what I like about it is that he takes a swing at, 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 at identifying what the poet is doing rather than just what the reader is experiencing, which is what Reginald Shepard does. But it feels like the whole piece feels a little bit thin to me. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah overall. It's not, but it yeah. feels like if anything, I could use more examples. Like that felt like, yeah. Sorry, the go piece ahead. Are, the, the piece are diminished because of the removal, because it's, it, it moved from sort of a very unbiased, almost unopinionated cataloging. And then there's a little bracket with a comment about how this bit been removed. And then the next paragraph is like, and the next paragraph is more judgmental, moving towards sort of a conclusion, sounding like a voice that's just got off sort of a heated argument, moving to a more passive, more accepting tone. And it just felt so disjunctive to me. And then when I actually read the paragraph, that when Matthew supplied the paragraph that had been removed, I don't know, it felt, it felt so minor. I mean, compared to sort of essays I've read, Compared to sort of um, Rebecca Watts' taking down of um, uh, taking down of sort of Instagram oh, yeah, posts, yeah. Well, posts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Compared to that attack on Holly McNish, the paragraph felt very sort of reasonable, whether I agreed with it or not. Which I I didn't. I found the poem, the bit of the poem quoted, rather uninteresting and unexceptional, but. That was just one quote, and I I haven't read anything else of Farrell, so I can't really form any opinions. But I don't. It just seemed 
I don't, I, you both have supplied reasons why there was such a reaction, but the article itself just seems so minor compared to the amount of. It seems like it's not. It seems to me as if the reaction, as if the, this very minor article, sort of was the final straw that sort of lit the powder keg that had already formed, in a sense, in that the reaction seems more important than the article itself, which in ultimately seems pretty thin and minor, at least to me. Yeah, and this is where I'm just so out of my depth because, again, at the time I was so new to this whole world and I, I, <laughs> I can remember conversations, but they were very, they were very short and I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't really part of what was happening, so I don't know what was in that powder keg. Yeah, so we would have to we would have to invite somebody on who was a bit more was a bit more active around the time to explain the the heat in that reaction. But um, everything that that you both are saying kind of reminds me too of like. I think really what Jeff's going for and what Reginald Shepard's going for and probably what you're going for in your article, Matthew, is maybe a little bit of protectiveness around readers. Um, Mm. And I think that that's important because um, (laughs) every single person listening, if they write poetry, would have had that conversation where you go to somebody and, you know, if you have the guts to say that you're a poet, the immediate answer is, oh, I don't get poetry. And I think that there are these kind of peaks of of difficulty that come through and uh, the poetry that is read and celebrated is quite difficult. And those are the moments where I think people like Jeff Page step in and say, hey, (laughs) we might be forgetting... (laughs) some important like elements here i.e the readers and i think we're in the opposite of that right now we're in a moment of of really really like simplistic poetry is what's getting the the attention the awards the the heat on it um yeah yeah can we just do do i i have you at all familiar with uh shepherd with Shepherd Reginald Shepherd? No, no. Yeah. This was this. Was, I mean, I, I vaguely recognize the name, but then this piece, uh, which is called "Defining because Difficulty I, in Poetry," is from his blog. Was was he was basically new? Yeah, because he's very different to what I think you and Paige are getting at, Matthew. Or at least he's very different to sort of how Alice characterizes you two. In that Shepherd is well, he's probably closer to me in that he loves Hart Crane. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a pretty fine poet. I, I like some of his poems. He, he had a lot of potential. I read his essay collection, Orpheus in the Bronx, when I was 16. and had a very sort of strong formative effect on me. I really liked him. Um, he dies really young, I think, like a year or so after this collection. This essay is published, which is a massive shame, because I, mm. it felt to me that he was sort of building towards a very sort of strong style and he's just getting started in a sense and then he dies but in that sense he is let his article about his uh, uh yeah his article on the blog about difficulty he's more going to be on the side of the difficult poets he mentions than on a sort of un, a non-understanding reader's side he like he can 
he obviously is writing to people who don't understand difficulty, but he's trying to say that difficulty is good. He's he's on the side of difficulty. He's trying to promote it, even as he tries to diagnose it. Yeah, the key sentence I think for me was where he says every reader encounters poetic difficulty of some kind at some point. You know, whether it's lexical, syntactic, uh, semantic, or formal. Um, and yeah, you're right. He's and he's just saying that that's okay. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. He, and and the, the, the distinction I was grateful for, because he does, he, as with um, uh, Jeff Page, though, though, again, from he's really describing the difficulty as experienced by the reader. And I, I think I didn't necessarily get that. I mean, I don't know him as well, but I didn't necessarily get, necessarily get the sense that he was a, a chauvinist for difficulty so much as he was, this felt like a very dry, precise account of like all the different ways in which one might experience difficulty. It felt like he was trying to be as objective as possible. Um, yeah. He, he, he identifies yeah, lexical that. difficulty, elusive difficulty, syntactical difficulty, difficulty, semantic difficulty, and formal difficulty and modal difficulty. And then he just in summing up, I think in, in a way that makes people, I think it, I, I found, I found helpful. Cause again, I, I think the, the, you know, Alice, you talk about like the, the, the listener you want for your podcast is the person who's new to poetry and feels a little bit out of her depths. Mm. And, and I similarly, like, you know, somebody who says, I don't get what's going on here. I want that person to, to be oriented by an, an essay like this. And I think he does a pretty good job summing it up at the end by saying, when people call a poem difficult, they are generally experiencing either semantic difficulty I don't know what this poem is saying, or I don't know why this poem is saying what it's saying. Formal difficulty, I can't see here the shape of this poem, or modal difficulty, I don't recognize this as a poem. And, and I think there's modal difficulty to me is like the, is the big, big question. And I don't know if I don't recognize this as a poem is exactly the best way to articulate that, but there is, that's I think where I feel that's what I off, most often experience. And it's not necessarily that I want to say, this isn't a poem so much as whatever the thing is that you are setting out to do with this as a poem, either I don't, either I'm not aware of it or it's a different thing than I think you're doing or you were just passing like ships to the night. Like the thing you're after, I'm, I'm lost. Mm. Uh, Which is also, there's got to be room for that too, yeah. Because I think maybe oh, what, sure. yeah. what you're pointing at, Matthew, is just the, the, the irritation that's often felt when difficult work gets um, a kind of attention that feels disingenuous. It feels like, yeah, you know, like Emperor's New Clothes stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, what you're doing is you're making room for people to turn around and say, that's really not for me, which is, which is great because there's a whole bunch of other stuff that will be for you. So yeah, I mean, and, and you're you are both like, especially Alice. I think some of what you're, I think you are rightly challenging some of the crotchetiness of because I think you're right. Like the the best case for Jeff Page or me is that we're advocates on behalf of the reader. But I think it is a pretty reasonable question to ask, like, why is difficulty in poetry a thing to argue about at all? Exactly. And I don't know that there's a great answer to that. I think and probably, yeah, there's not. <laughs> and particularly right now, right, where the the poets yeah, yeah, yeah. who are getting the awards and the prizes and the money and the tenureships are 
not very difficult. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and like I, we have talked a little bit about this with Cameron, but like I was partly responding to what was the hot shit when I was younger. Right. And I think you're totally you're totally right that 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 is not the the big problem with poetry, if there is one today, is not that there's too much that's too difficult. That That's not really it. Yeah. Well, it kind of goes back. Sorry, Cameron. I feel like I'm shutting you out, but um, I just I just wanted no, to No, no, like, go ahead. Uh not it goes back to that very first conversation we had, Matthew, about the article on Ashbury, and I think that writer yeah. was sort of saying, "I think, I think Ashbury's over," and I think he was over before he even died. <laughs> like yeah. he was so huge, and he spawned so many imitators and a and really huge impact over here. And I'm not sure about the UK, but yeah, but that's he's gone. <laughs> That was my conversation with Alice and Cameron. You can find Cameron, as always, on Eratosphere. I've got a link in the show notes. And Alice, sorry, my daughter has got her foot stuck in a plastic bag and is walking around the room with it. And you can find Alice at her podcast, Poetry Says, which she recently described as being the Batman to my penguin. I don't know how I feel about that, but uh, you should check her out. It is always uh, it is always an interesting ride. You can reach me, as always, at sleerickets at gmail.com. And again, go check out The Secret Show at sleerickets.substack.com. Thank you all for listening, and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.